Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast. I'm Helen McKenna, a senior fellow here at the Fund, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Today we're going to be talking about the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black and ethnic minority populations. We'll be looking at what the data tells us about how these groups are affected and how this varies between different communities, as well as exploring some of the factors that might be driving these differences. And we'll also look ahead and discuss what needs to happen next in terms of service recovery, mitigating the longer term impact of COVID-19 and tackling some of the wider issues that lie at the heart of what we've seen to date. And I guess just a note at the start about terminology. We know that the language we use to discuss these inequalities is important. We've chosen to use the term ethnic minority to refer to people belonging to ethnic groups that are in the minority in the context of the population of England, unless we're referring to data that has been collected using different terminology. But we also recognise that ethnic minority groups are not homogenous and that there are differences between them and how they have been affected by COVID-19. And we're hoping to look at some of these differences in today's episode. To help us look at these questions, I'm joined today by two fantastic guests, Natalie Creary of Black Thrive and Professor James Nazru of the University of Manchester. Before we get into our discussion, can I ask you each to introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell them a bit about what you do? Natalie, let's start with you. Hi, so I'm obviously Natalie, the um, Programme Delivery Director for Black Thrive. We're a partnership between local communities Uh, the voluntary sector and uh, statutory and private sector organisations that work together to look at how you reduce uh, mental health inequality that's experienced by um, black people in Lambeth. And our work looks at how you improve people's access to services, uh, their experience of them once they're um, within the system, but also thinking about the prevention piece in terms of what is it that we can do when we're thinking about the wider determinants or the social determinants of health, how can we reduce inequality in those areas in order to uh, minimise the impact that it has on the mental health outcomes of black people? It's great to have you with us, Natalie. And James? Thank you, Helen. Great great to be here. My, my name is uh, James Nasru. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester. And my research and policy work focuses on inequality and particularly inequality in health and within that particularly inequalities in relation to ethnicity. Uh, And my approach really is to think about how the social and economic inequalities faced by ethnic minority people shape their health experiences and their encounter with um, health institutions. really trying to centre experiences of racism in this to show how racism shapes uh, people's experience of inequality and their and inequalities in health. Well thank you James and Natalie for joining us today. So I want to start by looking at what the data shows in terms of the impact of COVID on different minority ethnic groups and obviously in particular recognising that these groups aren't homogenous and should be treated as such. We've had data analysis from the Office of National Statistics and Public Health England and both of those have shown variation across a range of characteristics including age and sex and deprivation amongst other things but what's particularly stark is the disproportionate impact COVID-19 has had on black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. James, can you talk us through what the data shows? Well, um, maybe I'll just step back from giving detail and just talk about um, uh, the broad uh, pattern. So the data 
do show, as you described, marked inequalities in outcomes in relation to COVID-19, um, both in terms of risk of infection, in terms of risk of um, complication, and in terms of uh, mortality. Not surprising findings, although they're very shocking, not surprising findings, though perhaps it is a little bit unexpected to find that um, uh, the public health community was not ready for these findings and indeed not even uh, didn't even uncover them themselves but were confronted by those findings by public and media concern uh, but nevertheless um, uh, not surprising shocking findings but, but of course as you as you suggested Helen there are variations in in the risk across different um, ethnic groups uh, with some groups having higher risks than other groups but what what is crucial here is that um, apart from one group uh, Chinese women who bizarrely um, or surprisingly or uh, unexpectedly don't have a higher risk. All other groups do have a higher risk, including um, white minority groups. What characterizes this is that these are groups that have been negatively racialized in our society. So we need to ask ourselves what it is about the consequences of this negative racialization uh, that results in inequalities that then shape experiences of COVID-19. Um, but the crucial point to make here, I think, is that this is not unexpected. This maps on very well, mirrors um, other studies that have shown ethnic inequalities in health. That's really helpful. Thanks, James. And so uh, clearly it's not quite the great leveller that some people were describing it as in the early days of this pandemic. Natalie, before we get onto the factors that are driving these differences and that James alluded to some of those just now, obviously your work at Black Thrive centres on black communities living in Lambeth. Um, does this data align with what you're seeing at a local level? Yeah, so I think I'd probably echo what James uh, said in terms of actually communities were sort of raising the alarm in terms of the impact that COVID was having on them before they decided to look at the data. Um, and I think that that in itself is always quite interested that we have to wait for the stats to come through before we actually listen to communities. And I think one of the challenges that we are having sort of locally is the generally poor collection of equalities data, which is making it quite difficult for us to really understand um, what's happening in a timely fashion. So. Um, a lot of the questions that we have, we're having to go back, or the system is having to go back retrospectively um, to collect that data in order to be able to answer some of the questions that we have, which is really quite disappointing. And I think if uh, one of the, the lessons from this really needs to be that there is no excuse not to collect um, equalities data in a robust way. And in fact, I mean, I was going to come on to this in a bit, but that one of the recommendations from the second Public Health England review is around collecting better data, but it's clearly an important gap. How bad are we at the moment in terms of the data that we collect? Well, I think, I mean, in, with our work in Black, at Black Thrive, poor data quality has been a challenge for us in some areas around being able to even assess, you know, the experiences of and the outcomes for black people in, in, in some services. But through our work because we have started asking that question it has encouraged um, services to be better at doing that but I think COVID-19 has highlighted that there is still quite a long way to go and I think for us it's not just about collecting the data it's about what do you do with it afterwards 
And I think that ensuring that you have fast paced mechanisms to actually respond to that data is also the critical point, because I think a lot of communities are now a bit tired of us describing the problem and telling us how awful things are for us because we know, because we live it. So collect it so that you know how to invest and focus your resource, but please make sure that you uh, actually do something about it. Yeah, I, I, I think um, Natalie is making some really very, very important points here. Um, one is about the quality of data that we uh, get, we collect. There, there are two other really very important points. One is that the data need to be accessible. And at the moment, much of the data that are being used uh, by public health officials to describe um, the extent of ethnic inequalities in relation to COVID-19 or other health conditions are not available for broader public scrutiny and other forms of data are just not collected. And then the really crucial point, we need to go beyond collecting data and to describe differences to describe inequalities and begin to use these data to monitor our progress in addressing inequalities. And it's also how we describe them and also it's the context that we provide for this data because just providing information that, for example, in the context of black communities, that black people's outcomes are poor without providing the context of structural racism and how that shapes our outcomes, I think is a, is a real issue because you leave the person reading the article or the report to come to their own conclusions and assumptions about why that issue arises. So even when we're thinking about, oh, you know, people are from lower socioeconomic groups, immediately people tend to uh, locate the issue with the individual, with their community. You know, they're not well educated, they don't have good jobs. And so when you're thinking about it in terms of from a policy or uh, the perspective of trying to develop an intervention, you try to fix the person rather than trying to fix the system that shapes their choice, that shapes their agency. And that, so these are the things that we really need to make sure that when we are reporting them, that we provide that context. Thank you. I think, James, when you were unpacking the data a bit in a high level, it was clear that there are at least two very distinct things that were being highlighted. That first, that the risk of testing positive for COVID-19 is higher in people from minority ethnicities than white people. And second, that after contracting COVID-19, people from minority ethnic groups are much more likely to get severely ill and die compared to the majority white population. I know there's a lot that's still unknown about this illness, but Natalie and James, what do we know so far about what's driving the higher risk for people from minority ethnic groups to test positive for COVID-19? Is it that these groups are more exposed to the virus? And if so, why? Well, there is a clear possibility that ethnic minority people um, are more likely to be exposed to the virus. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of question about testing programs and how they operate, how representative they are and so on. But regardless of that, I think there is a clear chance that ethnic minority people are more likely to be exposed to the virus, to contract the virus because of where they're employed employed in sectors that increase their exposure to COVID-19, like transport and delivery, security, cleaning, healthcare, social care, and so on, you know, the key services. And um, that's where that you're in a greater risk of contracting the virus, yeah. Yeah, because, of, uh, because you remain active throughout a lockdown period, and you remain 
as part of your work in contact with um, other people and therefore more likely to be infected. Uh, and then there's also kind of things like living in more densely populated areas and so on that also increase risk of exposure. Important to say that none of these things are accidental, so they're shaped by the processes that Natalie has been talking about. They're shaped by the ways in which ethnic minority people's lives are, are, are influenced by a, a whole set of inequalities. And Natalie, anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I would, I would agree that we're increased exposure, but I think even when we start to unpick what that means and how that plays out in people's lives. We were hearing reports from people who um, were in these frontline roles, who knew that they were being put at risk because they weren't provided with the correct PPE or um, their employers hadn't taken on board uh, the, the increased risks because they might have a long-term condition or be living in a household with somebody who does have a long-term condition. And certainly from the survey that we did, people who completed our survey were more likely to live with somebody who had a long-term condition. But what we found that even though that was quite well known, the employers were not responding in a way to ensure that they minimised their risks. So people were feeling bullied and pressured into going into work. Um, and so I think that it's also important that we sort of surface those stories because actually it's not just about people necessarily making that choice to go to work and people not seeing that, you know, not wanting to self-isolate and to protect themselves, but not having that choice. And when it comes to the factors behind why people from minority ethnic groups are more likely, as the data suggests, to get severely ill and die from COVID-19, I mean, obviously, I think... Some of this is going to be shaped by some of the ways you've you've both spoken about the kind of context. Are there particular factors that we should be interested in, including potentially um, pre-existing health conditions, and how do they play into this? So I, th- I think this relates um, very strongly to your earlier point, Helen, that um, this is the, th- this condition is not a great leveller by any means, just like any other health condition. It's not a great leveller. It's patterned by inequality. And of course, in this case, um, patterned by the um, uh, social and economic inequalities that are faced by ethnic minority people. Um, Poorly paid employment, insecure employment, overcrowded, poor quality housing, living in deprived neighbourhoods, living in areas with high concentrated poverty and so on and so on. Those kind of things uh, increase your risk of having uh, complications. And of course, they also increase your risk of um, having the conditions that aggravate an infection with COVID-19. So um, diabetes and, uh, and so on. Those health conditions are not just arbitrarily uh, at increased risk for ethnic minority people. They are also shaped by the social and economic inequalities uh, that ethnic minority people face. So we we do have to think about this as being um, shaped by social and economic inequalities, which are then shaped by processes related to racism. Yeah. Natalie? Yes, to stop at explanations that are just limited to people having long-term conditions or living in poverty is too narrow without understanding it within the context of structural racism and how that has not only a negative psychological impact, but also that physiological side that we will miss a trick, essentially. So we really do need to 
understand these inequalities in the context of structural racism. Yeah, we've we've previously interviewed Professor David R. Williams of Harvard University who's talked about the impact of discrimination and racism on health outcomes specifically. I think this the question I'm about to ask raises even more questions than it potentially answers, but for the benefit of our listeners, I think it's still worth asking. Is there any evidence that biological and genetic factors play a role in terms of explaining some of the differences we see between different ethnic groups? So, so most of my research, I've been work. I don't want to overstate this, but I've been working in the field for for thirty odd years. Most of my research has um, uh, pointed to the lack of any genetic or biological influence on ethnic inequalities in health. So, so if you take that line of explanation, then you say illness, biological change, biological change driven by genetics. And so although we can find biological differences with people at different risk of illness, this is not driven by genetic risk. This is driven by social and economic inequality. And, you know, the, the, the crass example, and I'm sorry to use the word crass in this case because there may be some evidence behind it, is the vitamin D. I call it a crass example because the assumption that um, vitamin D relates to genetics is immediately made. And, of course, we know that vitamin D is a disease of economic inequality. In the 70s, it was addressed by giving uh, vitamin D supplements to white people's diets so that white working class people did not have rickets anymore. And we need to think of vitamin D in this way, not in terms of something to do with skin colour or genetics. And Natalie, I was reading um, something from a submission from Black Thrive this morning and uh, in it you mentioned this, the kind of scientific racism. Is that something that comes into play here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time I, you know, I see or hear somebody talking about vitamin D, it really just makes me want to weep. I think it plays into these sort of racist narratives that black bodies, black and brown bodies are genetically inferior. And again, it's a bit of a distraction from actually focusing on the issue at hand, which is structural racism. Because if you can locate the problem with the person within the black body, it therefore means you don't have to do anything about it or acknowledge your role in sustaining those inequalities. And so I think that it's really important that even if there is some kind of arbitrary link with vitamin D, that that is shared within the context of structural racism, because I'm sure there were people from black backgrounds dying in contexts where they had plenty of sun and access to vitamin D. So there has to be something more at play than just, you know, having enough vitamin D supplements and a bit of sunshine, like, come on, please. Yeah. You know, you know these uh, these types of explanations are also, you know, they, they are insidious. Yeah. Uh, they're present in media coverage, they're present in political commentary as well as in um, uh, academic research. It's not just a problem of scientific racism, it's a broader uh, problem. This has never featured prominently in any um, inquiry into inequalities in health. We've seen a series of those. Ethnicity has not appeared. Uh, And the consequence of that is there's been no serious thinking about what drives ethnic inequalities, which then allows us um, to move into these common sense assumptions about what ethnicity is and what um, causes differences across different ethnic groups. Um, uh, So the public health community do not have the tools uh, to understand the ways in which 
racism shapes the lives of ethnic minority people and the health consequences that brings. I think that that's also because these conversations, this research, happens without us. It's done on us, it's done to us. We are very seldom the authors of this work. Neither are we involved in, if, if we're not the authors, neither are we involved in sense-making um, of the data that is, mm. that is produced. So when we think about the public health literature, I think there was a recent systematic review and it basically said that the public health literature has been silent on the term systematic racism. And so actually on that, so you've both kind of clearly placed this within the context of structural and systematic racism. And actually the, rep the follow up report from Public Health England refers to that not the first report, but the second one that looked specifically at the impact of COVID-19 on minority ethnic groups. I just wondered how important is it that the report acknowledges that? And also if you could just say a little bit more about how that plays out in relation to health. So I think it's crucially important to acknowledge the role of racism in, in uh, shaping the lives of ethnic minority people and therefore uh, shaping their experiences of, of health. I think that is crucially important. But I think the problem with uh, reports like even the second Public Health England report is that they do not actually properly grasp what racism is and how it shapes people's lives. So they don't properly grasp that. And that relates to my earlier comment that they really do not have, the public health community really does not have the tools to understand what drives ethnic inequalities um, in health. I, I talk about three dimensions of racism in, in my work. I talk about structural racism, uh, which basically shapes people's access to resources. I talk about interpersonal racism, the everyday slights, the insults, the violence that people face or people like you face, which then undermine your identity in very fundamental ways, threaten your security in the world in very fundamental ways, uh, and produce disadvantages in themselves. And institutional racism, which we haven't perhaps talked about enough yet, but the ways in which institutional racism then shapes your encounters with key institutions which then influence the outcomes of your life not and not just health uh, education policing employment and, and and so on that distinction between these three types of racism is really a, a heuristic device but it shows how deeply penetrating racism is in our society and then the consequences of that um, for people who are racialized and i don't think a report gets into the levels that you're talking about james from from looking at it natalie yes i think with that report I was part of one of the consultation groups and yeah. my reflections was that the people who were attending were, made it very clear their feelings around the links between structural racism and the impact that, that COVID was having on black Asian and other minority um, ethnic communities um, in, in, the, in the UK um, and what was quite disappointing was that although it mentioned that the recommendations at the end were more or less sort of your same old, same old, let's reduce inequalities in uh, the social determinants of health. And I'm thinking to myself, well, isn't this what we've all been working towards for like however many decades? And for me, what would have been like radical within a kind of statutory um, kind of system was to actually say, hey, one of the recommendations is let's see uh, racism as a public health issue in its own right. But again, I think part of the reason why people 
don't talk about this and why it's not important is because largely the people writing these reports, doing this research, do not share our experience. And so if you don't, if you don't experience it yourself or you're not touched by it, you don't see any traction. And I think this is one of the things that I think has been quite interesting with the death of George Floyd in the States, that actually that incident did something in terms of moved people. So people who didn't necessarily share it could see that injustice. Um, and, and that's, I think, why, to some extent, we are starting to see some noise moving in the right direction. What I'm waiting to see is whether that noise actually moves towards action and that we actually start seeing better outcomes for communities who are most marginalised. So you brought us on, Natalie, to the recommendations that Public Health England made in their second report. And I think they were aimed at developing a greater understanding of the impact of the pandemic and rebuilding communities. But I wanted to get your sense on whether these are, I mean, I know they don't go far enough in relation to uh, kind of acknowledging and kind of really trying to tackle the issue of structural racism. But in terms of what recommendations are there, are they right in terms of the sphere they're trying to tackle? I think they just don't go deep enough. I think that's I think that's the problem. It's we should really stop having conversations about inequalities unless we're prepared to engage with conversations around structural racism. We feel it's really important that if we want to understand what that picture is, we need to have the communities who experience this at the forefront. And so one of the mechanisms that we are using is kind of using working with community researchers to be able to undertake that research so that they are telling us about their experience experiences and that they then have ownership of those research outputs. And actually, if we want to think about it from a structural perspective, we should expect people to look like the people they're talking about, essentially. And, and I think that is, I think, one of the uh, big gaps, I think, in research, in terms of statutory organisations. As I said, I'm working on uh, a programme that's looking at how you address inequalities among black people. I'm often the only black person in the room. There is fundamentally something really wrong about that. And James, so the recommendations largely centre on the role of health services and there's, to a lesser extent, local government but what about the role of national government? The role of central government is absolutely crucial. Public health inequalities should not be devolved to um, systems that do not have the power to make substantial change. Uh, and so when we have government leaders, including ethnic minority government leaders, standing up in front of us and saying things aren't as bad as they were in uh, when I was young, it does show a lack of grasp of um, uh, what's going on. So uh, one minister, uh, uh, one ethnic minority minister saying, when I was young, the National Front walked down my street, uh, not recognising what's going on on the streets at the moment with far-right white supremacist groups marching, uh, uh, defending uh, symbols of slavery and uh, so on in response to the Black Lives Movement. Uh, so we do need government leaders to stand up and say, actually, uh, this is unacceptable, to name racism, to talk about racism, and then to set in place uh, the processes that do set about inquiring into how we address these uh, problems. So there's a real uh, need for 
leadership. There is a real need for leadership and, and if we think about the entrenched social and economic inequalities and how they're driven, this can't be fixed at a local level or it can't be fixed by Public Health England. It has to be fixed by government policy. So just looking ahead, as services start to focus on recovery and coming out of COVID, what are the things they need to be mindful of? And Natalie, I'm thinking particularly of your work because you've recently surveyed the communities you work with in in Lambeth on a range of issues, including this one. So we basically um, looked for to develop mechanisms where uh, the voices of communities can be directly fed into decisions about the recovery plans around COVID. So our community researchers are capturing people's experiences and that is influencing decisions at a local level as well as at national national level. So I think if others can find mechanisms to, to do that, I think that's really important, um, but more so that actually community members are in those spaces, because I think even though I'm advocating on behalf of black people in Lambeth, it would be far better to have people from Lambeth in those spaces. We're also, I think one particular legacy of COVID-19 is that we're expecting to see a surge in demand for mental health support. Again, Natalie, is that something that you're already seeing in Lambeth or is it something you're expecting to see? So I think the um, pattern has been quite interesting. So I think lockdown was very, very difficult for for people and obviously had um, a negative impact for, for many. But we've also, I think one of the things that we often forget is about the resilience of black communities. One of the things that we've seen is that um, people are making use of online platforms. Locally, a peer support group run by a, a local black man um, has grown. I think they have like 40 or 50 black men joining every week to talk about mental health you know, and their experiences of COVID. Um, obviously, there are still people who are concerned and have a lack of trust in terms of accessing services. But we are currently fundraising to develop an offer that brings together black therapists with black communities to offer a range of therapeutic services. So I think, again, even that whole notion of, you know, black people don't want to access therapy or healing spaces. I think sometimes it's about the type of healing space that you're offering. We need to start thinking about different models of care and that kind of culturally appropriate peer support and advocacies, but also making sure that with everything we are involving communities as part of that process. Um, and then there's likely to be the, a fallout, I guess, in relation to the uh, broader impact of COVID in terms of unemployment. Yeah, um, I was about to ask about yeah. that and the economy. Yeah. Yeah. So all of those things. I mean, we saw that during lockdown that people were placed in some really desperate situations. So that inevitably is going to have an impact. But I think when we're working with our commissioners, we need to look at where are there the opportunities to create employment, to create business opportunities for people who experience the most disadvantage so that they can maximise on those opportunities to improve their material circumstances. And also, you know, there are people who've been furloughed, who have skills. How do we mobilise them and provide the infrastructure to enable them to do stuff, I guess, you know, in their communities. And I think the key is about it being led by the communities who are most impacted. And so it sounds like Black Thrive are doing quite a lot with local services to try to shape 
the kind of right offering as we're coming out of this crisis that's tailored to the needs of local communities. James, I did want to get your take on the point around the impact on unemployment and the economy. So obviously this is likely to impact on health when it comes to thinking of the specific potential impact on on the health of minority ethnic groups, are there things we need to be particularly mindful of here? Yeah, so, so I think I would argue um, uh, two things really need to be considered. That the first, that the we all know, and I'm sure policymakers expected um, the COVID nineteen response to have an impact on the economy, and it's having a very fundamental in- impact on the economy. Judged to be worth it because of the benefits in terms of our health. But judged to be worth it on the basis of an on average impact. And of course, um, some people are in much more precarious situations than others. And that is not the on average. And so we need to think about how to mitigate the disadvantages that are faced by those in much more precarious situations, uh, whether that's difficult housing conditions, precarious uh, zero hours employment, self-employment or whatever that might be. Government needs to think about that as well in terms of the ways it's establishing economic support, housing support and so on. The other area that's really crucial to think about is what's happening to health services. Uh, And so I think it was pretty much unanticipated how the withdrawal of health services would impact on the health of the population. Uh, But when you can no longer get a GP service, no longer get your routine treatment uh, for your diabetes or your hypertension or whatever um, chronic condition you may have, then then it's much harder to keep um, on top of that condition and then complications begin to happen. And so I think that's something that we really need to pay attention to because of these broader inequalities. I think minority people are more at risk of experiencing chronic illnesses. Uh, but have also experienced at the same time a withdrawal of investment in um, support to care for those conditions. Instead, money has gone into acute services and all other services have, uh, in effect, disappeared. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about the need to do some kind of rapid learning ahead of a potential second wave or further outbreaks. For each of you, what's the one big thing that you hope policymakers and others involved in kind of managing this crisis to date have learnt from the experiences of the communities you've been looking at and working with? I think for me, it's that actually that plans are in place to protect communities who are at most risk and that people act quickly because I think we spend too much time waiting for the data to come through. Let's take action. And I think also ensuring that people from those communities are part of that process. Um, because I, th- I suppose some of our reflections is even in terms of trying to get some of that messaging out that would help inform people's kind of decisions about whether they chose to self-isolate versus going into work. Uh, even that information that was provided wasn't clear. It was conflicted. I mean, I'm on the shielded list. One minute I'm told I can open a window and get some fresh air. And then the next day it's like, oh, no, actually, you can step outside your door and go in your garden. Make up your mind. You know, so I think that there is something about ensuring that we're part of this process. Yeah. And James? So I... I hope that people who are driving policy uh, in in response to a potential um, second wave of uh, COVID-19 are aware that this is not equally distributed across the population. That's absolutely crucial. And it's not just 
the risk of infection, the risk of complication, the risk of mortality, but the consequences of uh, measures designed to control the pandemic. Those negative consequences are not evenly distributed across uh, the population, which then means in terms of ethnic inequalities, thinking very carefully about how those policies can be modified in order to protect those people who are particularly vulnerable, both of illness and of the economic and social harms. You know, so I'm sitting here in my um, office at home, uh, looking out at my garden and my neighbor's nice house, um, just me and my partner living here. Uh, no children, we've got lots of room um, uh, and so on. It's not quite the same as being on the 7th or 10th or 13th floor of a two-bedroom house with three or four children and no access to outside space. Why am I allowed the same use of external spaces as someone who's in those terrible, in relative terms, conditions? And I think that gets to the heart of some of the things we've been talking about today. Hopefully, people listening, policymakers and others, will hear those final thoughts and um, think about how they can be incorporated as we as we move forwards. Thank you both so much for joining me. That's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And please, we'd love you to subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps others to find us and also helps us to improve the show. And you can also get in touch with us to let us know what you think via Twitter, either at the King's Fund account or my account, at Elena Macarena. And thanks, as always, to you for listening, but also to our podcast team, producer Ian Ford, and special thanks to Vina Raleigh and Jonathan Holmes for their help with researching this topic. We hope you can join us next time.